So if you have your Bibles, I invite you to open up to Romans chapter 1. We'll be studying this morning from verse 1, probably then down to the end of verse 4. So what you're finding uh, Romans, just to let you know, as I said this morning, we're going to be trying to run Romans and the Gospel of Matthew parallel along, along beside each other. And hopefully this morning you'll be able to, to see why I believe that this is going to be an important endeavor for us. But just as you're finding uh, Romans 1, chapter, uh, chapter 1, verse 1, let's just pray for God to guide us this morning in this time. Let's pray. Father, we ask, Lord, as we start this new journey through this epistle, Lord, this letter to the church at Rome, Father, we ask, O Lord, for grace upon our ears, Lord. Help us to be able to see what has been perceived throughout church history as one of the greatest expressions of the gospel ever penned, Father. We thank you, Lord, that if we had time this morning to go into the rich history of those who have come to faith through this epistle, Lord. Father, we thank you for men like Augustine, Lord, one of the early church fathers who came to faith through the reading of Romans, Lord. We thank you that we are here this morning because you allowed an obscure monk father to be able to understand through this letter, God, that it is by faith alone that we are saved, not by works. And Father, we thank you, Lord, that we are the byproduct of that understanding, the true gospel. So Father, we thank you, Lord, for people who have read this and got saved. And we thank you, Father, that we may be filled by your grace and Holy Spirit with anticipation, Lord, to see how our lives will be changed through the reading of your word and the study of this book of Romans, Father. So God, we ask that we give you glory as we study. We ask, Lord, that we have attentive ears and the understanding to be able to apply each and every facet of it to our lives. And we praise you, Lord, that we this morning can meet here without fear of persecution, as so many of our brothers and sisters have around the world. Father, educate us, discipline us, Lord, admonish us and lift us up, Father. All this morning through your word we pray. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. So as we come to this uh, letter of Paul to Romans, or to the church at Rome, as we know as Romans, we must read together through the beginning of it where it says in verse 1, Paul, a servant of Christ, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. <coughs> now, there doesn't seem to be very much there, as, as many of us understand when we come to God's Word, and yet this is rich in depth of meaning, particularly for us whenever we read that word, Paul. For many of us, we may have an understanding of who Paul is, but it's important every time that we come to any passage, any discourse that we read in any of the canon of Scripture, that we take our time to realize what's being said. And immediately here we see this word, Paul. Well, who's Paul? 
We've looked at Paul quite a bit whenever we studied 1 Timothy as we progressed last year. And we looked at uh, as our, and we made our way through 1 Timothy. But whenever you think of Paul, what immediately do you think of? What imagery do you have in your mind? If you were the reader of this in the Church of Rome, would you think whenever you read that word, Paul? For many of us, we know who Saul is. And I think it's important this morning, we're not going to spend much time. We could spend quite a lot of time on it, but just to refresh our memories as to what it is to read this word, Paul, and what the depth of meaning is behind it. So turn with me, if you will, to Acts chapter 9, verse 13. Acts chapter 9, verse 13. In fact, we'll read from verse 11 to get the context. And it says, And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight at the house of Judas. Look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come and lay hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man. How much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he is, and here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he has chosen, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and children of Israel. So here we have Aeneas through a vision. By our Lord Jesus Christ instructing him to go to the street called Straight, where Saul, who we now know as Paul, is there. And many of us are familiar with this story, but we have to understand the fear and the trembling that he actually has to say back to Jesus, but I've heard much about this man. I've heard about the evilness that he has done. I've heard about how he is zealous and he is a major uh, persecutor of the church. If we had time, we could look at whenever Paul is standing at the stoning of Stephen and how Paul, who is there in the synagogue, who is going through the Jewish customs and adhering to what he deems to be the law of God, even though a lot of it is predominantly traditional. And outside of those walls, there is Stephen preaching the good news, preaching the gospel, ministering to widows and orphans in their affliction, and preaching the gospel to the lowly of the low, to the beggar, to the lame, to the drunkard, to the fornicator, to the prostitute. He is out there proclaiming the good news. And those like Saul who we know as Paul, are outraged, full of zeal. And he is the instigator of his murder. That is why they lay the cloaks down before him. And even in the last bit of blasphemy, as they called it, Stephen was able to call out and say that they are to be forgiven. This is Paul who is writing this letter. He is the persecutor of the church. He is a murderer of fellow brothers and sisters and he has stricken fear into the church that badly that he is the main component for how the church in Jerusalem had to run out of Jerusalem in fear of their lives. This is Paul. So when we come to read that name we need to understand the history of this man, the context of this man and how the gospel is seen through this man. 
As well, if we turn to Acts verse 13, Acts 9 verse 13. Sorry, I read that. Sorry, no, Acts, uh, Acts verse 26, sorry. Acts 9 verse 26. And it reads, And when he, being Paul, had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. And they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. So even whenever Paul has Ananias come to him, even though he has had his Damascus Road experience, even though he has had scales fall down from his eyes, and he has perceived that Christ truly is the Messiah sent, the Davidic King that we are reading about as we progress through uh, Matthew, and is the promised Messiah to set all people free, when he comes into Jerusalem, even the who, the disciples, were afraid of him. He has that much of a back history. He carries that much of a baggage. He is feared by everybody. So when we come then to hear that word, Paul, that's who we have to think of. This is the man that, as God said, who he has chosen to bring the gospel to the Gentiles, to bring the gospels to kings, to bring the gospel to the children of Israel. This murderer and persecutor of the church. If we had further time, we could go back to look at his conversion. That even at the point where he was still breathing threats, and the Greek there is like a bull breathing out uh, anger through its nostrils. This is how zealous Paul was for the church, and how he wanted to make an end to it, make a waste to it. That he was still breathing threats as he makes his way to Damascus whenever Christ intervenes and shows him the gospel. Further, if we read from Paul himself in the book of Philippians, chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3, verse 5. Whenever Paul talks about his own self, talks about who he is as a Jew and why he could boast in so much. It reads, Philippians chapter 3, verse 5, that he was circumcised on the eighth day. Of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. So he was like a Pharisee, he was blameless, he grew up in Tarsus, which is basically the, the capital of where people wanted to go and get trained. He studied underneath the, the great uh, Pharisees and rabbis that there was. This was a man that, according to the law, was completely blameless. He was also of the line of Benjamin. As to righteous under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted all loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything loss. For the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things. And counted them as rubbish. In order that I may gain Christ. He says every single thing that attains to stature within the religious community. I count it all as rubbish. In fact stronger than that he counts it all as dung. Waste. Nothing. For he has seen what truly the riches are in Christ. This is the man who is pending the book of Romans. So whenever you are a reader of this at the Church of Rome, and you've heard about the stories, you've heard about the counts, you may even know people who were murdered or imprisoned or beaten or whipped because of this man, he starts off by saying, Paul, they know who he is. 
They understand who he was. And he makes clear now who he is now. Where he says, a servant of Christ Jesus. And the word there for servant is doulos, which means slave. Now, for us, whenever we come to that, as we read down through Romans, we're going to come to what he says. He says, Paul, a servant of Christ, he is called to be an apostle. We'll come back to that. Set apart for the gospel of God. And for many of us, we constantly have to bring ourselves back to what the gospel is. The gospel is perceived good news. We live in a time where we hear in the, the news, fake news. This is not fake news. This is good news. This is the most good news. This is wonderful news. This is the most amazing news that we can possibly ever fathom. Why? Well, I believe it's important to put it into context. And to do that, I want to turn to the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 1. So take a left in your Bible, if you would, to Ecclesiastes, chapter 1. As you read Ecclesiastes, if you're familiar with this book, you understand that Ecclesiastes is all seeing what everything in this life is indeed vanity. That nothing brings joy, nothing brings hope, nothing brings true contentment, and nothing brings peace. So we'll read down together what it says. Ecclesiastes chapter 1 verse 2. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and it goes around to the north and around and around goes the wind. And on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they will flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, See, this is new. It has all been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of the former things, nor will there be any remembrance of latter things yet to be among those who come after. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I have applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity. And a striving after the wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have uh, acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceive that all also is but a striving after wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation. And he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself, but behold, this also is vanity. I said in my laughter, it is mad and of my pleasure. What use is it? 
I search with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made good works, I built houses, I planted vineyards for myself, I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made for myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who bore, who bore in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and my concubines to the light of the sons of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me. And whatever my eye desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil. And this was my reward for all my toil. I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and striving after wind. There And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. This is the life of every person who walks as is depicted there under the sun. No matter how much you gain, no matter how much you read, no matter what you do, it is all indeed folly. The treasures, the gold, the silver, everything that your eye perceives, if you attain every single thing, you shall not be satisfied. And yet that is the constant lie that we find ourselves in. It is the meaninglessness of life is what he deems to be vanity. It is the pain and the sorrow that each and every one of us feels as we walk this life. It is the emptiness that we constantly have without Christ. But the most saddest of all is that in this life, no matter how pain-stricken, grief-stricken, that you can come to know or feel or bear, there is something worse to come. That there is life after this life. And no matter what you face in this life, that is worse. We prayed this morning for Fred's wider family. The pain of loss, the pain of sorrow, the grieving that will happen there. And yet that is nothing in comparison with what will come. So if indeed we live in a, in a world that has fallen, that no matter what we do, no matter what we obtain, no matter what we build, no matter what we achieve, we will see at that time it is vanity. And no matter what pain we feel, what loss, what sting that comes in our way, it is nothing measurable to what will come. Therefore, what is good news? What is the point of this life? As we read continually throughout Proverbs and the Psalms and throughout the echo of people who have come before us, what do we do with everything that we have whenever we die Death still holds so tight. There is nothing to look forward to apart from separation from God, pain, turmoil and everlasting torment. That's what we're in need of. That's why God sent his son. And that's 
what the gospel is. Freedom from all of that. A promise that one day our pain will end. Our tears will be wiped away. And that what we have is a hope that cannot be taken nor shaken. Which is everlasting life and resurrection from the dead. This is good news. It is peace within yourself. It is those who this week. Who do not know Christ nor know a true gospel. Or ever heard a true gospel. And are stricken with the guilt of their sin. As they look down a barrel of a gun. Or as they tie a noose around their neck. And they have complete and utter despair. Because they have come to the knowledge and the truth. That is no longer hidden from them. That there is nothing apart from vanity under the sun. And no relief from their pain. Nor relief from their guilt. Alcohol doesn't quench it. Drugs doesn't cover it. Money doesn't make it subside. For there is an emptiness given to each and every one of us that cannot be filled. Apart from the good news. The gospel. So when we come to sing songs like we did this morning, you may not have realized it, but for many of us when we sung that first song, you sang guilt, darkness and power over the grave. That's what the good news brought. No more guilt, no more darkness, no more pain when we die of realizing that we will not be raised again. That has ended because of Christ's coming. The second we cry, we sung, we will cry, holy, holy, holy. And that you will whenever you see the day when Christ returns and you're given a new body. And you're forgiven of every sin that you've ever committed. And you have peace. And you understand all things. There will be nothing to boast in apart from him. The third, although it cuts short, what did we sing? It's meant to be a reminder when we come to sing. We sang, in Christ alone my hope is found. Not in money, not in wealth, not in family, not in spouses, not in anything apart from Christ. Family will let you down. Pastors will let you down. Elders will let you down. The only hope we have is Christ. To be raised from this decaying body of flesh. The only hope we have in the midst of the torment of guilt that the devil comes, even though he was the one that led you into that guilt, he will then use it to weigh you down and burden you for your lacks, for your sins, for the mistakes, for decisions you wish you hadn't made. Where do you run in the midst of that, apart from deeper into the darkness that he leads you into? Therefore, when we come to read Paul That should we have hope in our hearts when we read that. That no matter how lost we were. No matter if we were a murderer. No matter if we were a tormentor of Christ himself. Because that is what Christ said to him on the road to Damascus. Why, O Paul, do you persecute me? That every blow that he made upon a son or daughter of Christ and of God. Was a blow directly to Christ himself. No one is far or too far gone. No one is... Too far into darkness to see the light they called it. Even while our family, brothers, sisters, friends still breathe threats. The gospel and the gospel alone can redeem them. So there is hope whenever we read Paul or Saul. Amen. We'll continue. He says, Paul, a servant, a slave to Christ. Why? Because why would I be a slave to the devil once again? 
We all know that we were purchased by price. We were brought out of Egypt, so to speak. We were all slaves to ourselves, slaves to our wants, slaves to everything. But Paul says, I am not a slave to Christ. You can whip me, you can shipwreck me, you can leave me with no friends, but I have Christ. Called to be an apostle. What was the purpose of Paul's calling to be someone, apostle? What does it mean? It means one who is sent. Paul writes this letter to the Romans and writes it to us today to say, I was sent by God Almighty to bring you good news. No matter your despair, no matter your sin, no matter your circumstance, I bring good news. No more guilt, no more shame, no more working, no more striving in the flesh. We read in Ecclesiastes, what is crooked cannot be made straight. And that is true apart from Christ. It is the Holy Spirit who makes me and you, who was and is crooked, that we cannot straighten ourselves no matter how hard we try. It is the Holy Spirit that makes you straight. It is the Holy Spirit who changes you and gives you a new heart. And that is the gospel as well. It's not by your own strength or your merit. It's by Christ. As well as that, it personifies grace and forgiveness. Could you imagine if I step into the shoes of Paul for a moment? And I stand here before you and I say greetings and you know that I was the one that murdered your wife or murdered your husband. You're the parents of Stephen. You know that I have whipped, mocked, imprisoned your loved ones. And yet you embrace me as Paul because Christ embraced you who is too a sinner. That's why within Christians we're not meant to come to the table with ill feelings of brothers and sisters. Why? Because if the church could take Paul, and if we who will go to heaven and be with all those who may have lost their lives in a persecution time during Paul's reign of tyranny, they will be with Paul side by side, bringing up praise and acclimate to Christ. It does not matter your background, there is forgiveness. That's why we as Christians should show forgiveness. So when you see that word Paul, it is significant to introduce you to what is about to come, the gospel of good news. Paul, an apostle, he is sent, set apart for this good news, this proclamation of God, which he promised beforehand through the prophets and Holy Scripture. He is proclaiming here that I am a, a proclaimer of the good news of Christ, and Christ is indeed the Messiah King that was sent all the prophets talked about the Davidic line that would come. All the prophets talked about the one who would be born of a virgin. They talked about the one that would be nailed to a tree. The one who would be crushed for our iniquities and our transgressions. The one that would be pierced. He comes to proclaim that it has been fulfilled through the Holy Scriptures whom is Christ. Verse 3. Concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh. According to the flesh is Mary. Everything that we've looked at in the beginnings of the Gospel of Matthew, who is the descendant of David, that's why we have the genealogy there. It is there to show that he is the rightful Davidic king. He has the Davidic ship through his adoptive father, Joseph. He has the Davidic kingship through his mother, Mary, the bloodline of Mary, and the right to be king through Joseph. He is the true Messiah King. And not only that, he is the Son of God. Verse 4. 
and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ. We know that he is the Christ because it was declared by God raising him from the dead, conquering death, giving us hope that cannot truly be shaken. Therefore, why is this good news even more surprising? This good news is even more surprising because the people shouted crucify. All of us, whether today or then, before the Holy Spirit enlightened you to truth, crucified Christ every time you turned away from him. Every time you were offered the gospel, you didn't believe it. That's why I heard uh, this week an, an analogy of the gospel. This is why it's even more good news. It's completely and utterly, shamefully undeserved. He said, God who placed us in the garden and we turned and ate the fruit. He then clothed us when he shouldn't have and then he set us and gave us statues through Moses. He sent his prophets, he sent his law. He sent a constant proclamation that we were his people and continually his people turned on him. Until it came to the point where God himself incarnate came, veiled in flesh and walked this earth and they shouted crucify him. Whip him, mock him and nail him to a tree. And yet we can read today in John 3.16 For God so loved the world that rejected him, spurned him, and desired to kill him. And the analogy that he said was of a man whose wife could not stand her mother-in-law. And one night, whenever he was drinking, the wife said, you don't love me. He said, of course I do. He said, if you love me, you would kill your mother. For she displeases me. And in the midst of his drunkenness and his desire to proclaim this love to his wife, he goes across the street from where he lived into where his mother lived and he went in a drunken rage and beat her to death. He then carved out her heart and on his way back in his rush of delight to tell his wife of what he had done, he fell and tripped in the middle of the street banging his head off of the tarmac and he heard these words come out of his mother's heart, son, are you okay? That is the analogy of what we have done to God and his law, his statutes and to him himself and yet he still says, are you okay? In the midst of our sin and our rebellion, it is this good news, undeserved, that God still cares for you, longs for us to have a relationship with him and covers us continually with grace. So therefore, when we come to Romans, we set the stage before us as what is to be proclaimed. It is Paul, who is a murderous persecutor, who has been sent by God to proclaim good news. And that good news is the gospel of grace and mercy undeserved by each and every one of us. Therefore, when we come to sing songs like guilt and darkness and power of the grave is gone, we should rejoice. And if we sing but how we're going to fall down before him and cry holy, we should rejoice. And most of all, whenever we realize from speaking and the testimonies of others that there's nothing in this world that will truly give you hope or satisfaction. We pray for those who are sick this morning. 
The reality is that each and every one of the people whom we prayed for this morning will indeed one day breathe their last. And there is nothing, nothing that will be more important apart from this one fact. Did they hear the good news and did they accept it? We're going to see this outlined for us as we progress down through Romans. We're going to see that we should not be ashamed of this wonderful, amazing, undeserved, gracious good news that can set people free from the captivity of sin and guilt and darkness and pain and hurt if we truly accept what the good news is, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ. All those who will but repent and accept that his atonement is sufficient and allow the Holy Spirit to change their hearts and their minds will be saved. Amen? Amen. Let's close with that.